Human Rights in Transit is a collaborative project that engages the ongoing and emerging tensions that are at the center of contemporary global existence. As people struggle for their lives as migrants, refugees, citizens, and indeed as humans, there is also a radical decentering and even crisis of the human underway. From technology, bioscience, and environmental transformations to decolonial critiques of humanism, the category of the human and the future of the humanities is deeply uncertain. This podcast features conversations on the myriad dynamics and processes that speak to the fact that human rights and the idea of the human are in transit. To inquire, learn more, or get involved, you can visit our website at u.osu.edu slash h-r-i-t. Welcome to this episode of Human Rights in Transit. Our aim in this conversation is to talk about migrants who are stuck in transit, those who are on either side of European borders facing insecurity in two contexts in this case, on the fringes of the EU, along the Balkan route, and within the EU as well, with those who have arrived and are still in a state of perpetual limbo. My name is Catherine Metz, and I'm the Outreach Coordinator at the Center for Slavic and East European Studies. And I spent this last summer in the Balkans, primarily in Serbia, researching the plight of Afghan migrants who remain trapped in transit. They're trying to re-enter the European Union through the Croatian or Hungarian borders, but because of heavily policed borders, brutal guards, and very restrictive asylum procedures, Their life is in limbo in Serbia as they try to move forward. I spoke to around 30 men conducting semi-structured interviews with them in Belgrade, in Šid along the Croatian border, and in Subotica along the Hungarian border. And I spent five weeks with them trying to understand their journeys and their situation within Serbia and what their hopes for the future were once they get out of the country. My name is Eleanor Painter, and I'm a PhD student in the Department of Comparative Studies here at OSU, working on refugee narratives um, through ethnographic and literary methods. So I'm interested in how people tell their stories of migration um, and precarious migration in particular. So this summer, I spent time at several sites in central Italy working with migrants who had come um, across the Mediterranean. Um, Most of them were from sub-Saharan Africa, and they were living in um, informal settlements, so camps that have been set up mostly by volunteers. Um, And I was working in particular with a group called Baobab Experience, which is in Rome. And they've set up currently a camp that's near one of the main train stations in Rome. And I also conducted observations and interviews at a few formal reception centers in a region called Molise, which is um, to the southeast of the region where Rome is. So my observations and interviews are contributing to my thoughts in this conversation. Let's start by clarifying some of the terms we'll be using throughout this podcast. Eleanor, can you give us a working definition of the word transit as it relates to what we're going to talk about? Sure. So transit can mean a lot of things, and um, some of the things that come to mind, movement in general, but also change and transition. Mm -hmm. This is also a term that gets used in some more specific ways in the context of migration, and specifically in the context of migration towards Europe. Um, So transit migration is a phenomenon that's 
that's currently being studied, I would say it's being studied increasingly. Um, it's a little complicated um, as a term because it doesn't describe a legal status. So unlike something like asylum um, or to think about t talking more specifically about refugees or asylum seekers, transit um, we're using to talk about circumstances. So people who are um, in movement, people who are on the move, um, or who have the intent to move. Um, and so there's a, a sort of working definition from a book on transit migration um, by a scholar named Aspasia Papadopoulou-Kurkula. And her definition is the situation between emigration with an E, emigration and settlement that is characterized by indefinite migrant stay, legal or illegal, which may or may not develop into further migration, depending on a series of structural and individual factors. So today we're interested in the ways in which this set of circumstances, this, um, this notion of transit both describes migrants' experiences and helps us understand some of the factors affecting those experiences. And along the same lines, for sake of coherence, we'll be using the term migrants to describe all categories of people in transit. This will include refugees, who those people who have received international protection due to the persecution that prevents them from re returning home, as well as asylum seekers, those who have applied for and are waiting to receive a decision on their asylum applications, and those deemed economic migrants who may not be eligible for international protection but are escaping situations of precarity nonetheless. So we've structured this conversation um, around three areas that we think are especially important to this, these contexts of transit. So we're interested in comparing observations um, and thinking about transit on both sides of EU borders in terms of journey, limbo, and resilience. So we'll be talking um, into those three segments. And throughout our conversation, we'll be making references to different, um, different documents and news items, and we will have those resources on the blog. Additionally, we'll be drawing on stories that migrants shared with us along their journeys while we were with them as we conducted field work. And we'd like to take a moment and say how grateful we are that people were willing to open up to us and share their experiences and that they gave us permission to tell their stories to others. We'll include their voices in different ways throughout this podcast, but because most of them are still in transit or awaiting decisions on their asylum applications, we will do everything to protect their need for anonymity and will not share any identifying information about them. Part one, journey. Although Eleanor and I were in different geographical spaces, and we interviewed people from different countries of origin who passed along different migration routes, we both realized that the journey of our respondents was not a linear path from point A to point B. The path they took was often not what they had originally planned, and their intended destinations changed throughout their journeys. Their journeys evolved in route for a host of reasons. And it was often external forces that motivated them to change plans and to, to move to different places or to stay in other places longer than they had expected. And these external forces include the rights that were granted in host countries or that were not granted in, in the host country, the closure of borders, the policing of borders, particularities of asylum procedures, and the conditions that they experienced in camps. So 
um, what are some of the ways that it came up in your in your interviews that people had not intended, for example, even to be in Serbia necessarily? Yeah. So so one thing that I noticed early on was that many of the Afghan men I met had wanted or planned to stay in Turkey. That was their final destination at first. But because of the situation in Turkey, which is hosting the second largest number of refugees of any country on earth with two and a half million refugees living there, uh, Afghans were, were disadvantaged in the asylum application process. And since 2013, they've not been able to apply for international protection. So those who arrived in Turkey a couple of years ago didn't have the right to work or the right to education or the right to legal residency. And they felt that they could find something better in Europe. And so they took their chances to move on. And that was the case of one young man who I met in Serbia who had been in Serbia for nine months trying to pass on to Croatia. And he spent a year in Turkey. He left rural Afghanistan after his parents were killed by the Taliban. And he, he originally intended to stay in Turkey. He found a job as soon as he got there. But he wasn't being paid his wages regularly by his boss. And the Turkish patrol was coming up and beating him on, on regular intervals. So he decided to move on and to head toward Europe. So ad additionally, something I, I witnessed in terms of unpredictability of the migration route came in the prolonged stays that people were in Serbia. When they left home, most likely the borders were open in the Balkans, and they were hearing stories from friends that it was a quick transit through Greece, Macedonia, Serbia, onto Hungary, and then to Germany. And so they left with this idea that it would be a matter of weeks from Afghanistan to Western Europe. And in fact, because of the closed borders in the Balkans, which were effectively shut in the winter of 2016, people have been bottlenecked in Serbia and Bulgaria, uh, as well as in Greece. And so the men I was meeting have been stuck in Serbia for nine to 12 months, and none of them expected that this would happen. They all said that this was much more a much more difficult journey than they had planned on. They were running out of money. They were running out of hope for the future. And frequently, they stated that they were wasting their lives in Serbia. And had many of them come individually? When, were any of them traveling together or did they meet en route? Most of them met en route and they got split up along the way and reconnected or heard stories from those who had made it further than them. And that's how they were getting their information about where to go next once they get across the border and which smugglers they could use to, to travel further, who had had success with certain smugglers. And then they would change their plans based on news from those who had passed borders. Hmm. And what about in Italy? What, what was the journey, the story of the journey that you were hearing from those you spoke to? Well, I would certainly echo what you said about it being a non-linear journey. So rather than thinking about these experiences as involving a, one point of departure uh, with a sort of predetermined idea about exactly where they were going to arrive, um, I spoke with a lot of a lot of people who had left um, perhaps years before um, and spent time in, in several different countries. A lot of the migrants that I spoke with, and many of these are um, young men who are from 
um, the Horn of Africa, which in the case of Italy is is important to signal because that means they're from former Italian colonies, or uh, from West Africa. Um, so from Gambia, the Ivory Coast, or Liberia in particular. Um, and a lot of them have, um, they, they left looking for um, safety, for, um, for a better life in one way or another. They left dangerous and very precarious situations. And many of them headed north, thinking they would end up in Algeria or Libya, and then found um, even more precarity there, and, um, and then so continued their journey on to Europe. But they didn't necessarily, they didn't describe their experience as one day leaving home, heading for Italy. It was something that came decided along the way. Here's a clip from the 2016 Italian film Fire at Sea by Gianfranco Rossi. The film focuses on the island of Lampedusa, which has been a point of arrival for many migrants crossing the Mediterranean. And in the clip, you'll hear a group of men offering testimony of their journey through song and chant. This is my testimony. We could no longer stay in Nigeria. Many were dying. Most were bombed. Churches were bombed. And we flee from Nigeria. We ran to the desert. We were in Shahada days and many times. In Shahada days and many were dying. Rebel were killing many people and we could not stay. We flee to, to Libya. And Libya was a city of crisis. And Libya was a place not to stay. We cried on our knees. What shall we do? The mountains could not hide us. The people could not hide us. And we run to the sea. So here, too, we have the example of migrants whose journey includes a period in Libya before they cross to Italy. So how did they make that decision to move from Libya to Italy? I think there are a range of experiences in Libya, um, and this is actually something that emerged. So I was doing interviews in June and July of 2017, this past summer, and um, when I asked people to speak with me about their experiences of journeying, their experiences in travel. Um, a lot of them didn't want to talk about some of the things that we see more often in the media. So they didn't talk to me about the the boat journey, for example, which is something that we see a lot of images of at least. Um, but they were really focused on Libya as a, as a site that is really a, a turning point for a lot of migrants and really dangerous um, for people. So it, um, I think they... They, many of the, the people that I spoke with were trying to call attention in some way to what was happening to Libya, uh, in Libya, sorry. And I think that um, it's been interesting to see since then, since the summer, some news coming out. Um, we can put a couple of links as well to this, but some of the news coming out about the conditions for migrants in Libya. So this is in part because of um, European decisions um, about how to fund efforts to keep migrants away from these these dangerous routes of the Mediterranean route, for example. Um, and so collaborating with um, authorities in Libya to keep migrants there. Um, but it's very complicated for people because of how camps in Libya are managed and other situations. So several of the men that I spoke with had ended up for various reasons in 
um, in situations where they were indebted to people and the only way to pay off that debt was, um, well, essentially to escape this, this sort of impossible debt, they ended up having to leave. And the only way to leave was to get on a boat. Um, so they ended up, those men in particular ended up coming not because they wanted to end up in Europe, but because they had no other choice. So it was a decision of last resort for some who, who make the journey by sea. Yeah, and that, that certainly doesn't speak for everyone, but I think that is an important factor to consider, yes. So we have one clip from a news source that's an interview with a Nigerian woman talking about her experience coming through Libya and ending up in Italy. Stephanie is from Nigeria. An aunt persuaded her to leave her home with the promise of a job in Europe. Instead, she found herself at the mercy of people traffickers in Libya. I spent a year and four months in Libya. A year and four months. But the year and four months was like seven years to me because I really passed through of hell. Part two, Limbo. Limbo is a part of transit and a part of the journey. Um, and we're thinking about limbo as a state of waiting that um, that arises because arriving doesn't mean the journey is over. So reaching one point along the route or reaching what would be a destination does not mean that the, the transit itself is finished. Um, so we're thinking about limbo in this segment in terms of how people experience transit while trying to cross borders and while waiting for applications to be processed. And we're interested in thinking about experiences of limbo both in and outside of the EU. Um, Catherine, you mentioned that migrants spend long periods of time trying to get across the Hungarian border, for example. Can you talk about this a little bit more in terms of limbo? Yeah, so something I witnessed among all of my respondents was this perpetual state of limbo and uncertainty when they'd be able to continue their their journey. And one reason that this, this halt in their mobility happens in Serbia is because of the European Union's externalization of borders. So the externalization of borders is defined as the externalization of migration controls describes extraterritorial state actions to prevent migrants, including asylum seekers, from entering the legal jurisdictions or territories of destination countries or regions, or of making them legally inadmissible without individually considering the merits of their protection claims. And that's an article by Bill Frelick, Ian Keisel, and Jennifer Podkol, which we'll include a link to on the blog for this podcast. And in the case of Serbia, the EU has declared it a safe third country, which means that EU member states such as Croatia and Hungary, the the countries that the migrants are trying to enter, these, these EU member states are allowed to refuse the opportunity to apply for asylum to irregular migrants upon arrival. And this has facilitated a practice of what's called pushbacks from Croatia and Hungary into Serbia. So migrants are, who are caught inside of these countries are rounded up and driven back to the border of Serbia, and they're released still inside of the Hungarian or Croatian territory and told to walk back to Serbia. This is a clip of a young Afghan man who was caught in Croatia and tried to apply for asylum there, but was subsequently pushed back to Serbia. I have tried more than 12 times to cross the Hungaria and Croatia border and one day I managed to Zagreb and I asked there for asylum and they told me why you're not going to Europe, more rich country like Germany, Sweden, 
I told them, no, I won't stay here. They said, okay, we, we will send you to the camp. And they lied to me. They bring paper. They said, send on this paper, we send you to the camp. And they deport me back to Serbia. Often at this point, um, there are regular reports of beatings, which kind of dehumanizes, humiliates, and degradates the, the migrant who's, who's already extremely disappointed by their failed attempt. And it insults them even more and discourages them from trying to cross the border again until they recover. Um, this safe third country idea is predicated on the notion that Serbia has a functioning asylum system that can accommodate the claims of those migrants who are in Serbia. So the idea is that they shouldn't have to move forward to the EU because Serbia can provide them protection. Serbia in theory, does have an asylum procedure, but in practice, it's extremely ineffective and inefficient. In 2016, there were 574 applications lodged, and only 82 of those were processed, with only half of those resulting in international protection being granted to migrants. So those in Serbia are well aware of their limited opportunity for receiving asylum in Serbia, and the human dimension of this policy is exactly that people are left in limbo. They're unable to cross borders because of how well they are policed and guarded. And they're unable to apply for asylum in Serbia. So in their, they're in this state of listlessness where they have no recourse, no legal recourse available to them to receive the protection that they desperately need in many cases. And do we know about how many people at a time this, uh, are, are caught in this limbo? I mean, is there is there a way of sort of quantifying this? I'm, I'm wondering how much. So when you say that there have been almost 600 applications in 2016, does that kind of represent um, any any measurable proportion of the total number? Not really. Um, so the, the last number I saw was there are 5000 people in Serbia who are in need of protection. Most of those do not try to apply in Serbia because they know that the country can't accommodate them because of this inefficient system. And uh, that there's high unemployment in Serbia, there's high rates of poverty, and they don't see a, a um, fulfilled future in the country, even though they do feel good there. There's very uh, low levels of discrimination, uh, very little hate or animosity directed toward these migrants. So they appreciate the fact that they've been welcomed in Serbia by the government and by the people, but they know that their future is not there. So can you tell us from the perspective of migrants who are inside of EU borders what the state of limbo looks like in that context? Sure. One of the things that strikes me from the way that you describe limbo just outside um, the EU is how much of this is dependent on policies that are um, still changing and still um, in, in need of translation, I would say, for local communities. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about how policies function um, and a lot of assumptions about what that might mean for an individual migrant, what their, what their chances are. Um, and I think that's true within the EU as well. So in, in, in Italy, but in the EU in general, um, the, the two policies that are constantly in discussion are the Schengen policy, which allows for free movement throughout the EU, and then the Dublin regulation, which is the regulation that requires um, 
asylum seekers to apply for asylum in the country of first entry. So for um, a significant number of the migrants arriving and for those coming across the Mediterranean, of course, then that country of first entry is, entry is often Greece or Italy and increasingly also Spain. Um, and so at a national level, you hear a lot of talk about the burden that that places on a country such as Italy to be the one that's primarily processing these applications. Um for migrants, it means that they learn when they arrive that arriving in Italy doesn't mean arriving in Europe. It means arriving in Italy and that you will need to stay in Italy while your application is being processed. So for people who want to join relatives um, or friends or who have an idea about where where they might want to start building a life um, in Northern Europe, which is where a lot of people aim to reach, um, that really stalls them. And so Italy becomes a, a Italy is a country of transit. People often want to move through to get somewhere else, but it becomes this country where a lot of people experience extended periods of limbo. So although it could take um, just a few months to process an asylum application, it increasingly takes longer than that. And um, of the migrants that I spoke with, many of them were talking about waiting up to two years for their application to be processed. Um, And it's hard to think about starting a life when when you're really not sure for up to two years what will happen, what the decision will be. And in that time, then they're either in um, in one of a series of reception centers or if, if, um, if they decide not to stay there or if they overstay that possibility, then they're in one of these informal settlements or even on the streets. Did you meet any people who had entered Italy and absconded to another EU country before waiting for their application to process? I did, yeah. So I met um, several of the men that I spoke with had been sent back to Italy for processing. So, And some of them had spent even six months in other countries. So a couple of them had been in Sweden for a while um, and tried to apply for asylum there and been told, no, we can see that you've been fingerprinted in Italy and you need to go back. Um, and a couple of others had had tried to move north um, by train and by foot into France and been caught at the border and then been sent back down. This is a clip from a news interview again with uh, migrants in the northern Italian town of Ventimiglia, which is right on the French border. Um, and this is a clip from a migrant who describes um, his experience in Libya from the point of view of someone who's now trying to cross into France. I went to Libya, and you know all the problems Libya has. Then I crossed the sea, and I traveled through all these areas to Ventimiglia, so that I can reach France. The problem is that they don't want me to pass. Is there an issue with me? A problem? If there's an issue with me going to France, if I'm going to cause a problem there, then let them make me stay here. But if there's no problem, then they should let me go. And so there's a lot of, of information, and I hesitate to say misinformation, but there, there are a lot of um, leads that don't get people where they, where they hope to go. And um, Because one migrant's experience of success um, might apply only to that particular moment. And so as that gets sort of sent back to others who might try and make the same journey, the circumstances change in the meantime, so it doesn't work um, for, for subsequent, subsequent migrants who might want to try. Um, so people end up staying, um, staying in different in different cities within Italy to apply. And so, I mean, in terms of numbers, we're talking about more than 114,000 people coming to Italy this year by sea. Um, and we should acknowledge that, that that 
more than 3,000 people have also died at sea mm-hmm. this year trying to cross. And it's it's not only by sea, because some of the men I met in Serbia, their intended destination was Italy. So there are people entering Italy by land from southeastern Europe, and they're also adding to the number of asylum claims that need to be processed there. Hmm. Yeah, so I think people hear that... Um, that Italy can be a good place to get their 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 claim processed, and yeah, I also met a couple of um, Afghan men who had come down um, for that reason. I'm not sure to what extent that information is true, but um, I also understand that, as you said earlier, people meet along the way and make decisions based on who they encounter and what they hear, and what opportunities they find for moving once they cross into the EU. That determines a lot of this. What I realized from a lot of my respondents was that they weren't completely aware of the Dublin regulation and the implications that would have for them. So they thought that when they get to to Germany or France or Belgium or wherever they wanted to go, they could apply for asylum and that would be it. Um, but in fact, most of them or some of them may have to return to Bulgaria pursuant to the Dublin regulation, since that was the first EU country that they entered. And then Bulgaria will be responsible for their asylum claims. And Bulgaria is a country that a lot of them reported brutality at the hands of Bulgarian officials and um, civilians in Bulgaria who targeted the migrants. So this causes a further state of limbo, even when they reach their intended destination, because they're still they still haven't found security or stability. Yes, and I think um, so. This is the the limbo is created by a combination of national and international policy, and then you know what the migrants have already experienced and their how they are. Um, how they are transiting, so there are particular circumstances. But there are a lot of local factors involved, too. So in Rome at the camp um, where I spoke with people this summer, one of the problems um, has to do really with local situations. So um, they're trying to work out a way to establish a center for these migrants who don't find space um, in the centers that exist already in Rome. Um, And they're encountering a lot of problems with Um, local government. So trying to navigate that and negotiate a a safe and healthy space for people um, is a long process. And it means that this Baobab group has been, um, you know, running through volunteers, um, running an encampment um, for almost two years now, um, outdoors with tents in the middle of the capital of Italy. I don't think this is... um, Unfortunately, I don't think this is particular just to Rome or to Italy. Even you hear about this in Greece and uh, even in cities like Paris. So, for example, one of the complications in a city like Rome is that um, the local government doesn't um, doesn't have means or isn't finding ways to offer additional accommodation for applicants right now for migrants. Um, And so these informal settlements Um, have emerged through the efforts of volunteers and migrants themselves in multiple places. At Baobab, one of the ways that I saw the tension between local authorities and and the camp and people at the camp was by the regular... uh, regular checks that police uh, came and did. So they would check migrants' IDs again, they would round up their belongings, and that means that um, 
when that happens, they often stall the application process further. So even though they are um, supposedly, you know, just sort of maintaining order and checking on these informal settlements, which don't have a, their own legal standing, um, at the same time, they perpetuate one of the main problems, which is that this process takes an incredibly long amount of time for people. And at that point, some of them have to start over because they lose their belongings. For example, they get taken up with the tents. Right. So this, this state of limbo exists on both sides of the border, and it causes a lot of precarity for those who are trying to find some means to have legal residency and a right to work and begin a new life. Part three, resilience. The final portion of this episode is about the resilience of transit migrants, which is displayed on both sides of the EU borders. And the act of resilience comes through in many different situations, and it's something done both at the individual level and collaboratively among migrants, and also with volunteers who stand in solidarity with the migrants. From what I witnessed in Serbia, remaining resilient is essential to the survival and um, existing throughout this, this perilous journey. In the case of Serbia, the, the resilience comes through because the migrants believe that upon crossing just one more border, they will reach safety. And they think that this is the last obstacle they'll have to overcome, and then a new life will be waiting for them, where they'll be able to have protection, have documents. Um, They'll have a place to live, a warm place to live. They won't have to sleep in tents anymore. Uh, They'll be able to provide for themselves. And um, it's this hope and this faith that something better is waiting for them that keeps them resilient in the face of all the struggles of the precarity and the limbo that they're living through every day. Um, I also witnessed that the assistance of volunteers is one aspect that the, the migrants experience that helps them to have faith in humanity and to feel like they are being recognized as people. And I think this is especially crucial because along the journey, migrants face a lot of abuse from from guards, from officials, from smugglers. And they see that volunteers are coming to this uh, precarious situation. They're putting their lives on hold in some cases. They're working without any pay just to be able to give the migrants some sort of semblance of of normalcy. So what kinds of things are they doing there? Yeah, so what I recognized um, to be the most fearless type of volunteering is along the borders. The Serbian government has recently prohibited any kind of aid distribution outside of official reception centers. So every day the volunteers are going into forests and squats where the migrants live, and they're defying the Serbian orders, um, and they are providing water, showers, food, generators for the migrants to charge their, their, their phones. Um, they are giving makeshift English lessons, They are uh, bringing balls to play sports with the migrants. And it's really an act of solidarity more than it is charity. They're saying that we see you, we recognize your struggle, and and we stand with you through this. 
That sounds very similar to what I've seen um, at multiple sites in Italy, too, that it's through the work of volunteers and at reception centers, also through some cultural groups um, that have more official status. Um, But it's this combination of different groups that are collaborating to help people feel like they're having a normal life in some way while this is while they're working to stay or to be able to move forward or to sort out in any way their situation. Um, so I guess we're both sort of saying that that resilience is something that is both deeply personal and also um, part of a collective experience, which is, I think, and both of those aspects are central to this idea of transit on both sides of the border, the movement of individuals and also these um, these collective connections that emerge at different points um, and help maintain uh, lives and energy or, um, um, yeah, respond to needs in some kind of direct way. Yeah, and the, the act of engaging in resilience is risky because you're exposing yourself. If you want to remain undetected, it's easier just to try to stay under the radar and not do anything that will reveal you to the public. But by engaging in these sort of collaborative efforts, um, in some cases, these could be protests to demand better rights or better conditions. Um, You're putting your safety at risk, and that can result in a backlash. Um, so, so the act of resilience is, is really defiant, and it's something that, that gives people strength despite it being a risky endeavor. So we'll play a clip now of one example of this, which is from a demonstration in Rome um, from the end of this summer. And this is in response, this was a demonstration organized in response to the eviction of migrants from a building that they had been squatting for a few years. Um, and this eviction included um, people who already have refugee status and who have been Italy in Italy for quite some time. Um, so it also, I think, demonstrates the fact that these issues are not just part of um, what we think of as a, as a crisis, as people suddenly arriving to the borders, but that they, um, certainly within the EU, um, that they are part of ongoing issues that have to do with migration, integration, but also housing more generally. So this is a clip from a protest for housing rights for migrants. And you'll hear migrants calling out in Italian, using their own voices, and addressing the Italian public in this protest. And they're saying phrases that include, a house for everyone, a peaceful city. Um, and so, yes, just to echo some of what um, what we've said before, I think none of this is easy and all of it comes with a risk. Um, and I would note that also any small change in application status in housing arrangements, um, any of the, the precarity involved in someone's current situation, all of that can mean that um, that you have to modify your um, your mode of resisting and res- and your your way of expressing your resilience in some way. We've ended with this segment on resilience because one of the aspects that's been important in border work for both of us 
has been acknowledging and maintaining a sensitivity to the agency of the migrants that we spoke with. It's easy to watch the news and think of migrants as part of a wave of people or mass of people coming towards Europe. Um, And that discourse and those images can lead to really dangerous responses, including some of the racism and xenophobia that we see throughout Europe um, and, and at Europe's borders. So it's important to make space for conversations like this that challenge the idea that the crisis is about migrants suddenly leaving their homes and setting out for Europe. These journeys are a lot more complex than that. And the ways that migrants struggle are both commonly experienced um, in transit and also very individual. But I also don't think that these phenomena describe conditions that are particular only to Europe. And so I think one of our goals in this conversation is to suggest that these experiences of transit can tell us a lot about how borders and border policy function, not just in the EU, but also around the globe, and the effect that these policies and these practices have on people in transit. And these conversations are ongoing and evolving, and we will list resources in the, in the blog so that people can follow them as they evolve. Thank you for listening.